Good morning, Elevation family. I am speaking to you this morning from Nathan's bedroom. We have turned his bedroom into a half office, half bedroom uh, during this season when we're having to work from home. So he likes wolves and this is a boy cave, <laughs> hence the decorations <laughs> behind me. Dwayne says it feels a little like working in a residence hall room. It has a funny smell a little bit, uh, but it's nice to be able to close the door and have a little bit of separation from the rest of the house as we're working. So if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Kristen and I'm part of the teaching team here at Elevation. And today I'm tasked with talking about the next topic in our series, Nine Stories of Desire and Fear. And in this series, we're looking at this ancient tool called the Enneagram to better understand the different desires and fears that drive us in our life. And the hope is that by looking at these different desires and fears that drive us, we'll understand in a new way something about our human nature, our hunger for God, who he is, and who we are as his children. So today is type three. We're looking at the number three. Now, Brandon and I have said we're not here to preach the Enneagram. We're not here to teach it. We're just using it as inspiration as we work through these desires and fears. But we have um, set up with Crystal Hesselink, who is a trained Enneagram coach and teacher, to come and do two workshops with us, one in July, one in August. So in the midweek email that we send out, around Wednesday, you'll see a link to those workshops. You can sign up and learn more about this tool it, um, that teaches us how to better understand our intellectual, emotional, physical um, presence in the world, how we move through the world, and how we can move into a more whole um, and healthy place in our life. But today we're beginning with type three. <clears throat> and the unique desires and fears that are epitomized in this number. So in order to uh, introduce this number, I decided to tell, I would tell a story, uh, a parable. And what I would love is if the kids who are with us would get out some paper, pens, crayons, and draw pictures to go along with this story. I would love to see what this story looks like to you. What is the, what does the boy look like, the mountains look like, um, the old wanderer? So um, if you get out your drawing utensils, uh, I will tell you this story. So the story is called The Boy Who Climbed Mountains. Once upon a time, there was a boy who climbed a mountain. And when he got to the top of the mountain, he looked down and saw that people were watching him and were amazed at his accomplishment. And they began to praise him and encourage him and give him compliments. And as they praised him, the words from their mouth turned into these beautiful stones that fell at the boy's feet. When the boy looked at the beautiful stones, he thought, oh, this must be love. And so he picked up the beautiful stones and he put them inside his heart. And then he went to find other mountains to climb. And with each mountain he climbed, there were more people who were amazed at his achievement and his accomplishments, who praised him and gave him compliments and encouraged him. And he would take all their beautiful stones and put them in his heart. But what he didn't realize was that the more, heart, the more beautiful stones he collected, the heavier he got and the harder and harder it became for him to climb the mountains. And one day he got so heavy that he couldn't climb the mountains anymore. And he fell into despair. 
He was just beside himself. He went and sat on a cliff and he said, what good is my life? If I can't climb mountains, then I can't earn beautiful stones. And if I can't earn beautiful stones, then I can't be loved. And if I can't be loved, then I'm not valuable anymore. I might as well just die. Well, while he was sitting on the cliff, an old wanderer walked up to him and said, son, what are you doing here? And the boy explained to him, he said, sir, I can't climb mountains anymore. And if I can't climb mountains, then I can't earn beautiful stones anymore. And if I can't earn beautiful stones, then I'm not loved anymore. And if I'm not loved, what good is my life? I might as well just die. The old wanderer listened to him and said, well, before you do that, will you show me your stones you've collected? And so the boy opened his heart and he pulled out the beautiful stones and he laid them before the old wanderer. And the old wanderer began to laugh and he said, silly boy, don't you know the highest mountain of all is the human heart. And I have climbed to the top of that mountain and found the most amazing treasure. And out of his robes, the old wanderer pulled out a heart that was more beautiful than anything the boy had ever seen. It was made of gold. And the old wonder said, this heart is more valuable than any of the precious stones you could collect along the way. Why don't you give me your old heart and your precious stones, and I'll give you this new, beautiful, precious heart, and you can put it inside of you. And then because it's worth more than any of the precious stones you might collect, you don't have to collect stones anymore. You can climb the mountains as much as you want to just for fun, not because it makes you loved and valuable. The end. So I came up with this parable as I was thinking about the unique desire and fear of type three. The Enneagram teaches that all the numbers are actually in us. We have all the numbers in us. But for each of us, one number will be more dominant than another. And so for the type three, their unique desire is to feel valuable. And then what correlates to that on the other side is their deepest fear is that they're worthless. Chris Heritz, who's a teacher of the Enneagram, writes that um, threes have lost themselves behind the attention they receive for their performance. They didn't know from what their value derived, and so they went in search of validation by attempting to avoid any form of failure. So somewhere along the way, um, I think all of us can relate to this. We may lose ourselves uh, in affirmation for performances and things that we've done. We may get confused about then where does our value come from? And we think that our value comes from the fact that we're achieving things and accomplishing things. So threes then are defined by this inner drive that just pushes them to always prove that they are value, valuable. Now, it's important to note that there's nothing inherently wrong with climbing mountains, with achieving things, with setting out and accomplishing our goals. Those are amazing things. And there's nothing wrong with receiving praise and, and encouragement and affirmation as a gift. I mean, I words of affirmation are my love language. But the point at which I start to misunderstand that those words of affirmation are actually tied to my self-worth, then I begin to have a disordered sense of self. I think we often think about 
losing ourselves in base things, that we may lose our sense of value in worry or anxiety or depression or, or addiction. And, and that is true. We can lose our sense of value in those things, but we don't often think about the truth that it's easy for us to lose our sense of value in good things and good and things that are meant to be a gift. It is wonderful for us to set goals for ourselves. We want to get that degree, you go get that degree. You want to get a, a raise or a promotion in your job, you work hard and get the promotion in that job, right? You want to run a marathon, you want to put that accomplishment on your list. That is a beautiful thing and, and they're worthy goals for us to achieve. But sometimes we can disconnect um, and, mis and misconnect our sense of value to those things. And we can believe that somehow accomplishing those things makes us more worthwhile. And that becomes a problem because what happens then if we start failing? What happens if we get ill and sick and we're not allowed or we're not able to accomplish all the things we used to? What if uh, our marriages fail? What if we end up um, not being able to complete that degree? And does that mean that we're no longer valuable? I think rationally, we know that that's not true. We know that, no, we're valuable no matter what. But I think sometimes we can get ourselves, we can get lost in that lie that, that our accomplishments are what lead us to being loved and valued and worthwhile. So Krista Hesselink wrote to me and said, generally, um, a three's energy and attention is, is in their fear of not having inherent value outside of being successful and curating a successful image. And I think in this day and age, that is something that we almost fall into without realizing with social media, with celebrities, athletes, this idea that the more stylish we are, the more put together we look, the more glossy our image, the more attention we get, therefore the more valuable we are. Yet we see here in this Bible passage that we've read today um, a different perspective on this desire and this fear. We see here that Elijah also seems to have fallen into the fear of worthlessness. He seems to have bought into the lie that he's only as valuable as what he has accomplished. So when we pick up this story, what's happened right before is actually Elijah has had a miraculous achievement and he has gone head to head with the prophets of Baal and he has literally called down fire from the sky to prove that God is the one true living God and that the prophets of Baal are false and the fire kills the false prophets, the prophets of Baal. This is an amazing accomplishment and achievement for the Lord. And yet right on the heels of that, the queen of Israel, Jezebel, finds out that Elijah has killed all of her prophets and she's furious because she wants Israel to follow Baal, worship Baal, not God. And so she sends a mess message to Elijah and she says, I'm going to kill you. I swear my life on it. And Elijah immediately falls into fear and despair and he runs for his life and he runs as fast as far as he can and he sits down under a broom tree and this is where our passage picks up. He's under the tree and he's like, what am I even good for? I have been sent to bring the people of God back to God 
And yet Israel refuses to turn their heart back to God. They've killed all the prophets. They've destroyed God's altars. And now they want to kill me. What am I even good for? I have failed at my job. And we see Elijah collapsing into this moment of despair where the fear of worthlessness is the belief that his value to God is only tied into what he's able to accomplish for God. I think we all have had Elijah moments like this. I think we've had moments where we have attempted to achieve something or accomplish something, to find our worth in something, and then when it hasn't come together, we've found ourselves just like, well, what, what's the good of me? What's the use? If I can't do that, if I can't, if I can't contribute in this way, if I can't achieve these things, then what am I even here for? And so we look at the scripture and we see God respond to this Elijah moment in three interesting ways. How does God respond when we hit these moments of despair, where we begin to believe that lie that we are only as good as what we achieve and what we accomplish? Well, Krista Hesselink says that the invitation for the threes to move beyond this fear and this desire is to find security in the resolution realization that they are enough without accomplishments. So the invitation towards wholeness here is for all of us to the degree to which we have embodied these desires and fears, um, to believe that and to realize that we are enough without any accomplishments. And God begins to reveal that truth to Elijah in three different ways. So what's, here's the first way. The first one is God meets Elijah's physical needs in the moment. So Elijah's sitting under the tree. He says, God, I'm just, just be done with me. And God doesn't respond. He doesn't try to argue with Elijah and say, no, no, you are valuable. You aren't worthless. Instead, he lets Elijah sleep. And then he feeds Elijah. And then he gives Elijah a drink. And then he lets Elijah sleep some more. And then he feeds Elijah and he lets Elijah drink. And I think in this moment, we have such an interesting question posed to us. And it's this, if Elijah is truly worthless, then why take care of him at his most basic level? I mean, if Elijah really is just a throwaway, if he's a failure, if he's no good anymore to God, then why would God take care of his most basic needs in that moment? It seems to be a fundamental affirmation of the value and the worth of Elijah. It reminds me of my first summer after my first year at university, my first summer back. And my first year away to university was wonderful. I went to Indiana Wesleyan University. I, was, I loved my classes. I was challenged and stretched, uh, but also really like um, stretched physically, mentally, and emotionally. It, you know, I was not eating right because my mom wasn't cooking for me all the time. I wasn't sleeping well because there was like all this studying to do, but also there were people to hang out with and there were places to go socialize. And so I came back from that first year, just, I think running on like sleep, was sleep derived and running on ramen and adrenaline. And that first night back at home, I remember watching my mom and my dad and my sister and seeing how close they had gotten in my absence. Since I had been gone from the house, their relationships hadn't stopped and paused. They had continued to grow and grow closer. And I all of a sudden felt like, I don't have a place in this family anymore. They don't need me anymore. They don't 
They don't even love me anymore. And it just fell apart. And I was telling my mom, I was like, you guys are all so close without me now. You don't even need me. I don't even know what I'm doing here. And my mom, who who is a nurse, listened to me. And you could just see, like, she was utterly perplexed. She had no idea what was going on. And then it sort of, like, it dawned on her. And she looked at me. She said, oh, honey, I, th- I think you need to go to bed. <laughs> and so I did. I went to sleep. She was absolutely right. I just needed to rest. And when I woke up in the morning, lo and behold, I felt like I belonged to the family again. I think there's an invitation here in this moment with Elijah and God to be present in the moment, to not run away with the fear that we're worthless because we can't accomplish things, but to stay present in our bodies in the moment. And to recognize that God is willing and waiting to meet our daily needs. So Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, um, give us this day our daily bread. And so this is a truth about our walk with the Lord, is that he stands ready not just to solve, you know, meet the world's needs and come in in miraculous ways, but he stands ready to meet our daily needs. Now, would God do that for people who are worthless, who don't have value? And so my encouragement to you this week is, have you ever, have you ever given it a chance to engage with God in that way? And if not, then to do that this week, to each day, wake up in the morning and pray, say, God, here, here are my daily needs today. See if you, you know, see if he shows up. So pray that prayer, and then at the end of the day, you can look back and see where God has met you in those daily needs. And it is the most life-affirming, beautiful experience to get to the end of the day and realize God was there meeting you in your moment-to-moment. It fills you with a sense of love. So the second answer, the first answer that God gives Elijah uh, in his, a moment, his Elijah moment is to meet his physical needs, his daily needs. The second response God has to Elijah's moment is to whisper to Elijah. So God brings Elijah into a cave and he says to him, I want you to go stand at the mouth of the cave because I'm about to pass by. And so Elijah goes and stands at the mouth of the cave. And first, this violent wind blows through. But the Bible tells us that God is not in the wind. And then an earthquake shakes the foundations of the mountain. But the Bible says that God was not in the earthquake. And then a fire burns through. And the Bible says that God was not in the fire. But then came a gentle whisper. And God was in the whisper. And so Elijah goes out of the mouth of the cave to stand and listen to God's whisper. The very popular um, speaker and pastor, Steve Furtnick, says that Elijah is able to hear God whisper because God is close to him. And I think, isn't that true? You know, if, if, if God is far away, we can't hear him when he whispers, right? Then we need the wind and the earthquake and the fire to hear someone who's far away. But if God is close, all he has to do is whisper and we can hear him. And so that's the Old Testament but God brings this, this closeness to a new, beautiful level of fruition in the New Testament through the person of Jesus. 
And Paul writes in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about how God, in all of his fullness and glory, dwelt in the person of Jesus Christ. And then through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection coming back to life, God has opened a way now for him to be close to us and us to be close to him. We're not separated anymore. We can fully come into the presence of God uh, and share our hearts with him and hear him whisper to us because what God has done through Jesus. It reminds me again of my days in university. Um, It just so happened that my father was an administrator at Indiana Wesleyan University while I was there. And he was fairly high up. And so he was, he would work in the fancy administration building. And if most people wanted to ever come meet with my father or talk to him, they would have to make an appointment through his admin assistant and fit into his schedule. But if I ever wanted to meet with my dad, and I didn't do it often, but every now and then I would miss him or wanted his wisdom on something or just wanted to talk something through, I knew that I could go up into the floor where he worked, go into the office, and his admin assistants knew who I was. And as long as he wasn't in a meeting, I was welcome to walk right into his office and sit down and talk with him. And I often think about this. Uh, in the same way as God opening the doors for us to be close to him now through Jesus. We don't have to wait to make an appointment. We don't have to climb a mountain to prove that we're worthy to come into his presence. We don't have to achieve things. We are now, because of Christ, God's children. And we have a special access where we can come right in and sit with him and commune with him. I can come into the Holy of Holies and rest in the presence of God. So the third way, so that's the second way that God responds to our Elijah moments. He draws close and he whispers to us, would God draw close to people who are worthless? I don't think so. The third way God responds to the Elijah moment is to give Elijah a job to do. So Elijah has basically said, Lord, I've failed you. My one job as a prophet was to bring these people back to you. And it's not working. And I'm just, let me die. Fire me. I'm done. I I can't do any more for you. And in the face of that, God gives him more work to do. Um, God says to him, listen. He said, okay, okay. Now that you're done. I need you to go out and anoint this guy over here to be a king over here. And I need you to go anoint this guy over here to be a king over here. And then I want you to go anoint this this guy named Elisha because he's going to take your place one day. So he, so it's so interesting to me. Like, would, if Elijah's really worthless, if he really has nothing to offer God, would God continue to give him work to do? Would he continue to employ him in the job that is his to do? God has work for us to do too. Yes, we have been given this new, brand new, precious heart through the the person of Jesus. We've been made into God's children and we have inherent value beyond anything we accomplish. But that doesn't mean we get to just sit around on our couches now and not do anything. Doesn't mean we get to just sort of check out. 
Because the truth is we are called to do nothing more and nothing less than the mountains God has ordained for us to climb, has made for us to climb. And, and so in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So God has made us these masterpieces. He's put these beautiful hearts that have inherent value in us so that we can go do the good things he's planned for us to do. We can go climb the mountains that he has planned for us to climb. And each one of us has the good thing, a specific good thing, things that God has designed us to do. And so now we can let go of all the other mountains that we see, all the other accomplishments. We, we can let that rest. We don't have to climb a mountain just because it's in front of us. We climb the mountain because it's the one God has created for us to climb and to accomplish and to achieve. And so this requires that we sit in his presence with open hearts and open minds, and we stay open to his leading and his guiding to show us what are the good things he's led for us to do. Ultimately, in the end, this comes down to a choice that we all have to make. Just like that boy sitting on the cliff when he faces the old wanderer, he has a choice. Is he gonna give his old heart and stones to the wanderer and take the precious brand new heart or not? Is he gonna continue to keep the old heart and keep collecting the precious stones for himself? I think I would be remiss if I didn't, if I didn't stress this point that God has given us inherent value because of who he is and the work that he did on the cross through Jesus Christ. No, nobody else gets to say whether or not we're valuable now. He's already said the final word, and that word is written in the flesh and blood of Jesus. We don't get to say whether or not we're valuable. Our bosses don't get to say, our family members, uh, our friends. The only one that gets to say whether or not we have inherent value is our creator, God, because of what he did through the person of Jesus. And yet, and yet, we are perfectly capable of pressing on with our old hearts, trying to collect the stones for ourselves, even in the midst of this new reality. And so we're left with a choice. Are we gonna to choose to put down our old hearts? And are we gonna take the heart that God offers us? Are we gonna to choose to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he actually did the work he did on the cross and that has changed us forever? Are we gonna receive that power into us. So that's the question that we sit with today. As we look at the desire and the fear of the three, the desire to be valuable, the fear of being worthless, the invitation to embrace the truth that God has declared us valuable no matter what we do or accomplish, then we can truly choose with clear eyes whether or not we're going to live into that truth or not. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are valuable because we stand in your presence. We are valuable because we stand in the presence of the one who has accomplished the ultimate achievement. There is no other mountain left to climb. You have climbed them all. You have climbed the highest and you've climbed the most in order to capture our hearts and call us your own. And we are so blessed and so grateful and so thankful for that, Lord. And so we come to you today. We open our hearts Lord, and we, we invite you in. We offer up our measly attempts to accomplish good things. 
We recognize those things will never make us valuable enough. You have already called us valuable. You have already called us love. And so, Lord, we invite your presence and your spirit into our heart to renew us and restore us from the inside out, to change us. And then as we go forward this week, Lord, give us new eyes to see the mountains that you have chosen for us to climb because of your good will for us and love for us. And then empower us to go and accomplish those things. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So as we finish up our time together today, you are invited to join and jump in on your neighborhood groups where we're going to continue to discuss some of the ideas, thoughts, applications from the the message today. If you don't know which neighborhood group you're a part of or if you're new and visiting us, uh, you can just click on the link in the comments to a discussion group and join in there on the conversation. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week.